Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'd like to welcome today to Retina Synthesis, Alan Ho, who is Professor of Ophthalmology at Jefferson Medical College and is the Director of Retina Research at the Wills Eye Hospital. Alan, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Thanks, Carmen. Always good to be with you uh, talking about things retina. So today we're going to talk about gene therapy for neovascular AMD and diabetic retinopathy, um, which is a field that has gained lots of progress in the last few years. And Alan, you've been at the forefront of, of, of this field. Can you just give us an introduction to the basic science of, of what we're talking about in terms of the so-called biofactory approach compared to gene replacement? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good place to start, Carmen. The uh, field of medicine in general um, had gene therapy approved first in a retinal disease. Albert McGuire, Gene Bennett, uh, right across the river from where I work at Penn, you know, established gene replacement therapy for an inherited retinal degeneration that is labor congenital amaurosis. Um, one of the forms of that, the RPE65 mutation. So what they established was that <clears throat> you could take an inherited retinal degeneration, you know, a very small portion of the population with a defect and deliver vir with a viral vector AAV2 in that case, a replacement gene for a defective gene and it worked. And it's it really ushered in gene therapy, gene replacement therapy for not just that segment of the population with that inherited retinal degeneration, but gene therapy for, for all of medicine, really. The first in-human, in vivo gene therapy. And <clears throat> gene therapies for replacement uh, of mutations in inherited retinal degenerations continues to grow in parallel with more diseases. Uh, it's not fast enough for, for many of the patients with RP or other retinal degenerations, of course, but if you put it into context, there are probably at least an over 300 known mutations in that setting. Gene therapy for biofactory um, is a different concept. It's taking the transgene for um, a therapeutic protein. In this case, the anti-VEGF medicines we inject are essentially therapeutic proteins, antibodies, fragments of antibodies, and <clears throat> We didn't know if it was going to work, quite frankly. Um, you know, gene replacement for mutation, one thing, gene therapy to insert a therapeutic transgene so that the body makes its own therapeutic protein is something that really was not established and certainly was, again, really pioneered in retina. And um, you had some nice comments to say about me being at, a, at the forefront, but it's, you know, just like everything, it takes a village to do this. It takes, you know, it takes incentive. It takes um, surgeons that are refining surgical techniques. It takes uh, clinical trials. It takes industry to come up with transgenes. So with this confluence of, um, in this ecosystem, really, we have something now that looks promising, not just something that looks theoretical. And I think that's the exciting part right now. The, the burden of treatment that we, um, that our patients and we see in our clinics today might be addressed with gene therapy 
um, for these conditions that are treatable with anti-VEGF medications, wet AMD and diabetic retinopathy in particular, but there are, there are others. And of course, if things go well, that could be the next step. So there are three delivery routes that have been studied, intraocular, intravitreal injection, subretinal injection, and um, suprachoroidal injection of the uh, gene agents. Can you discuss those uh, applications in, in, in turn? Absolutely. So if you just look at convenience for the patient, an intravitreal injection would be something that they're very familiar with and, and perhaps that will work down the line. There are some programs that are looking at intravitreal um, gene therapy, viral vector injected into the eye. Let me give you a sense for how many viral vectors we're talking about. We're talking about 10 to the 10th and 10 to the 11th. So 10 to the 9th is a billion. 10 to the 10th is 10 billion. 10 to the 11th is 11 billion. And so or hundred billion. And so when you talk about introducing a gene therapy that is injected intravitreally, <clears throat> you have to figure out what the target tissues uh, are going to be transfected and whether or not there could be inflammation. Some of the programs have seen inflammation. And although intravitreal is very appealing, very familiar, um, it seems as though the immune privilege of the eye is less privileged in the intravitreal space. And therefore um, those programs are now going on with continued systemic steroids. Supercoroidal is another approach um, and that's an injection in the office. So there's some access and convenience there as opposed to going to the operating room. And we're in the early days of supercoroidal, but we're seeing uh, as Mike Klufus presented this past weekend at angiogenesis, some signs of, you know, this might be working. Uh, and subretinal uh, by surgery, subretinal technique um, is kind of the time-tested approach. And you can transfect RPE cells for a biofactory approach. You can transfect retinal cells. It does require surgery. Um, we've learned how to do that surgery better. We've learned where to put the gene therapy in the eye, I think better. And to the credit of Regenix Bio, um, all the gene therapies heretofore, theretofore before the start of that program, all the patients were on systemic steroids. But you were talking about young kids for labor's congenital amaurosis. When we're talking about 80 year olds, they don't do so well on systemic steroids. So we the protocol was written to not use systemic steroids. As it turns out, with each cohort and dose escalation, we saw really quiet eyes. I mean, really quiet. 100 billion viral vectors in the subretinal space, and the eyes look really quiet without systemic steroids. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, and that was a key finding in, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that particular method of delivery, of course, requires surgery and, and some facility and, and training. So um, there's some immune privilege, but there's some downside in that it's a surgical procedure. If you could have a one and done though, maybe you would have that, that surgery. So uh, where do we stand uh, from a, a regulatory standpoint in terms of the subretinal 
approach. Isn't that now in a pivotal phase three trial? Yeah, that was our message this weekend at uh, angiogenesis was that the Regenex phase one, two programs uh, for wet AMD um, have shown um, safety uh, and have shown uh, stabil stability and vision stability and OCTs for previously treated high demand wet AMD patients. We're talking previously treated, these patients were four years, five years, 10 injections a year on average. They were really high need patients, which is how you could um, counsel them into considering a one and done uh, potential therapy. Um, the need for rescue injections went down significantly, particularly in the cohorts that were therapeutic. And <clears throat> the safety issues, I talked about the uh, quiet eyes and the lack of vasculitis or persistent inflammation that we've seen in other, not even gene therapy, but in some of the other new anti-VEGFs and other molecules that we've tried uh, after uh, Lucentis and uh, ILEA, um, but there was really none of that. What we did see though were pigmentary changes in the area of the subretinal blebs and often inferior to that. So while we were placing blebs superior to the macula uh, as the target destination for the subretinal bleb in the viral vectors, we're now putting it down below because pigmentary changes as they as they can march through the, the fovea or drift inferiorly can cause vision loss. There were two out of uh, the 42 subjects that experienced that. So we know how to mitigate against that, I think, with inferior placement of the blebs. Mm -hmm. So um, that trial is underway. Yes, and it, it's led to the, the promising phase one, two has led to two pivotal trials for wet AMD comparing two doses of Regenex biogene therapy. In one trial, it's going to be um, <clears throat> uh, North of the United States, 60 centers, um, comparing with monthly Lucentis, one standard. And the second trial, which I like uh, by design because we have more than one really standard of care therapy, in my opinion, is going to be those two Regenex doses against uh, uh, Flibercept, ILEA. Um, and that's going to be in North America across 70 centers and about 435 patients. So we've gone from this concept of whether or not, do, will this work? You know, gene therapy approved for replacement. Now gene therapy for biofactory looking pretty good. And the, the difference is, you know, you have not to diminish the smaller numbers in the populations or the impact of blindness, in inherited retinal degenerations, but you're, you're talking now about potentially durable therapy and major retinal diseases, public health uh, issues where it would be nice to have this as an option um, for, for in our toolbox. Not, not saying that everyone should get a uh, one particular type of therapy. You know, we have uh, reservoirs, PDS implants, we have other longer acting injectables in the pipeline, but to have this as if it were to turn out to be safe and efficacious, to have this in our toolbox, I think would be, would be, would be a great option. The, um, 
intravitreal approach has had some uh, issues with inflammation and ocular hypotony in diabetic eyes. Can you comment a little bit about where the uh, the intravitreal administration approach is going to go? Yeah, I think I think the intravitreal administration certainly for at least one program, and and by way of disclosures, I I work with all of these programs, Carmen. So, you know, I, I, I would like them to all succeed, but one key learning is that at least at one dose level in one population that the Adverum group looked at with intravitreal anti-VEGF for diabetic macular edema, those patients had some trouble with inflammation and um, hypotony. And so they, they're modifying their doses uh, to go lower in what AMD, and they're staying away from diabetic macular edema now. As a nuance, there's also um, anti-VEGF for diabetic retinopathy progression or regression as opposed to diabetic macular edema. And that's what Regenix Bio is looking at for, for, for regression of diabetic retinopathy. Do you think um, that intravitreal administration for uh, of, of the gene therapy for macular neovascularization has a future? I think, I think we'll see. Um, I think the, I think the Adverum data looked pretty good. They did have some patients um, with intravitreal uh, gene therapy for wet AMD uh, who had <clears throat> requirements of um, not just systemic steroids, but topical steroids over time. Uh, and uh, but but there was there was significant reduction in the need for injections in another frequent flyers cohort of wet AMD patients. So I think um, if the lower dose and the steroid regimens can be uh, managed, I think that they might have a they might have a chance there. Are they going to phase three? They're going back. They're going back to uh, phase two with lower doses. Um, just to be careful and responsible, and I, and I applaud them for that. Mm -hmm. Talk about suprachoroidal administration. Lots of excitement, lots of interest in that, both for diabetic retinopathy and for neovascular AMD. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the, the scientific foundation is based on a couple of our colleagues out there now that have done some good work in this, including Peter Campichero and Glenn Yu, um, a young superstar. And what they've shown is that injection in the suprachoroidal space allows transfection of tissue. Um, maybe it's choroidal tissue, maybe it's RPE or retinal tissue, retinal cells. Uh, and I think they've established that certain vectors with certain transgenes, including green fluorescent protein as a marker, um, can, if you inject in the suprachoroidal space, um, do a biofactory approach without requiring bringing a patient to the operating room. Now, suprachoroidal injection is nuanced. There is some, there is some experience and nuance that's required, and is a little more subtle and is not as quick as an intravitreal injection. It's a something that you, the patient would experience for over a minute or so. But that, to take it out of the operating room into the into the office with that particular procedure, it would be a, it would be a great advantage. And so I'm glad, I'm glad that it's being explored. These are early days and um, 
you know, we're wondering if the immune privilege of the subretinal space would be afforded to the suprachoroidal space. If I had to guess, I'd say the subretinal space would probably be the most privileged. Um, that is not requiring steroids, then the suprachoroidal, uh, and then the intravitreal space, which has shown that it, they require some steroids. So the Regenix Bio is moving on to phase two trials for both of those? Uh, it's still early days, yeah. Not pivotal trials is the point. And, and the data that Mike Klufus showed this weekend showed really good uh, diabetic retinopathy severity score uh, reductions on par with um, what we saw in Rise and Ride with monthly injections of ranibizumab or bimonthly in uh, Panorama with uh, a Flibercept. So putting your predictor's hat on, do you think that in five years there will be in the medical retina armamentarium gene therapy for these diseases? Uh, you qualified it, so I'll remove the qualifier to make the answer easier on myself. There might be a medical or surgical gene therapy, mm -hmm. and I think there's a pretty good chance. Uh, <clears throat> we saw some, like I said, meaningful reductions in the need for injections uh, in the wet AMD subjects in the Regenix program. Well, Alan, this has been a great discussion. Thanks so much for your time, and we'll be back to you in another year to find out what new is going on. Thanks, Carmen. This uh, synthesis is a great idea. I'm glad you're doing it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.